amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Never get tired of good whodunit? Then you'll love June's Journey. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and to uncover her family's many secrets. You'll need to find objects devilishly hidden in an intricate scene full of little details, all before the timer runs out. Variety of game modes and puzzles await. Whether you're craving a good mystery or you just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. You can sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock Holmes escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties. You can also chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get a chance to play in a detective league in order to put your skills to the test. You can play basically anywhere you have an internet connection, but I personally like to play, you know, when I'm in a bit of a mental slump and need a little pick-me-up. You can find your inner detective by downloading June's Journey today. It's available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. This podcast contains references to sexual abuse, as well as language which may not be suitable for children. Listener discretion advised. It was the spring of 2007 in Brooklyn, and Chaim Levin was desperate. It was two weeks before his 18th birthday, and he'd just been referred to a therapist for a problem he'd faced his entire life. Chaim was a member of a conservative religious group, and he was attracted to men. So he asked his rabbi for help. I was outed by the time I was 17. I was pushed out of the yeshiva, the school system. Essentially, what I did was I, I said, do you know of any ideas, any resources? And he did some research, or his daughter did some research, and they found Jonah, and they just gave me Jonah's contact info and the rest. Was so Jonah wasn't a person. It was an acronym, one that stood for Jews Offering New Alternatives to Homosexuality. In other words, it was a conversion therapy program. Haim grew up pretty sheltered in Brooklyn's Hasidic community, and he had never heard of such a thing. But he was willing to try whatever it took at that point. So he picked up the phone and called the number his rabbi gave him. You have to understand that like an 18-year-old or a 17 and almost 18-year-old who is desperate to not be gay, when you see an, an organization, when they say to you, like, you've come to the right place, we've helped so many people, like, that is the perfect, perfect thing to say. The person on the other end of the line said they had a solution to Heim's big problem. It was to meet the group in rural Pennsylvania for what was supposed to be a life-changing seminar, one in which Heim could, quote-unquote, reclaim his manhood. So Heim pulled into a rented church fairground, left his flip phone and his mom's SUV as instructed, and stepped inside. And by the time he returned home a few days later, Haim was, in fact, a changed person. Just not in the way he'd hoped. The attraction to men was still there. But now Haim had a new problem. An even bigger one. 
In fact, it turned out that dealing with the fallout of that weekend would come to dominate the next 15 years of Haim's life. For a while, Haim said nothing about what happened in Pennsylvania. Besides leaving his phone in the car that weekend, he'd also been asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement before participating in the seminar. There was also the fact that he figured no one would believe him. And that was just how the convicted felon who founded Jonah, a man named Arthur Goldberg, wanted it to stay. They were thriving on the secrecy. The secrecy was their currency. And as long as people didn't know, that was how they were going to get people to come to them. This is Vigilante, an original podcast from Cast Media. You're listening to a story told in one episode called Heim Levin, the Plaintiff. I'm Ali Conti. Listen, I know this is annoying, but if you can take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It's actually good for both of us. You'll be notified when new episodes drop, and I'll be able to get more people to discover the show. Also, if you know anyone who has an idea for a subsequent season or single episode of Vigilante, drop me a note in your review. Our team is growing and always on the lookout for what's next. Thanks so much, and enjoy the show. Chaim Levin grew up in Crown Heights, a neighborhood in central Brooklyn that's a mix of West Indian and ultra-Orthodox Jewish. It's known for the huge tree-lined boulevard that runs through its center, and for the giant mansions that are interspersed among the brownstones that are more typical to New York. The religious character of the area is unavoidable. There's an alarm that rings out every Friday night to let people know it's time to begin observing the Sabbath. It sounds a lot like an air raid. Almost nothing south of that boulevard I described, Eastern Parkway, is open on Saturdays. Most of the restaurants are kosher, and the storefronts are full of Judaica or the long suits and black hats that observant men in the community are required to wear. This is Mordecai Lebovitz, who also grew up in one of Brooklyn's right-wing Orthodox Jewish families. He's friends with Haim. It's kind of a norm within the society that we look for rabbis' approvals for, you know, basic things and, and, uh, and certainly more controversial things. And that's where a man named Arthur Abba Goldberg saw a business opportunity. Arthur's a former Wall Street whiz who was known as Abba Dabadoo for his investing skills. He was busted for selling fraudulent municipal bonds in the 1980s. Arthur tricked people in East St. Louis into paying for a river port that was never constructed. He also perpetrated a fraud in Guam that was so severe that he couldn't even be tried there. It was impossible to assemble a jury of people who hadn't been personally affected by the scheme. Not all con men are rich, and not all cons make a lot of money, but con men tend to engage in cons. <laughs> and um, and th- th- he did have a, a bit of a sociopathic personality in that he, his natural instinct was to take advantage of other people's vulnerabilities. Inspiration struck when Arthur's own son came out as gay. It's, it was an emotional thing for him. He had a son who was gay, 
Um, and it kind of tore his family apart, and he didn't know how to accept it. Uh, he looked at the Christian community and said, the Christian communities, when your son is gay uh, and you think your son is gay as a child and whatnot, there are all these organizations that help, that come in, that support you, that, that help prevent these kids being gay and living gay lifestyles. And he very much blamed, um, he's like, where is the Jewish equivalent? When people think of conversion therapy, they most likely think of Exodus International. That group was founded all the way back in 1976 and was associated with evangelical Christianity. There's also the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, also known as NARTH, although that one is a nominally secular group that was founded in the early 90s. Until Arthur came along, there was no such group specifically targeting Jewish people. After noticing a gap in the market, Arthur reached out to the secular group I just mentioned, NARTH, and the therapist there put him in touch with a woman named Elaine Burke. She was also Jewish and also had a gay son she'd become estranged from. The two opened Jonah in 1999 in Jersey City. Elaine stayed behind the scenes, running the books and answering the phones. Arthur was the face of the organization, the man out schmoozing with people and trying to get referrals to his new program. That meant winning over the local rabbis, were considered extremely powerful in their communities. And convincing those rabbis is exactly what Arthur did. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I have a tendency to get pretty worked up about things. When faced with a problem, I don't go right into problem-solving mode. Instead, I have a tendency to want to assign blame or to otherwise waste time that would be much better spent coming up with a solution. It's a tough habit to break, but when you finally learn how to do it, there's no better feeling. Speaking from experience, a therapist can help you learn how to get out of your own way and accomplish your goals faster. Having someone to talk to who isn't a partner or a friend can lift a huge emotional burden. It can make you more confident in yourself and better able to handle stress. And if you're thinking about giving therapy a try for the first time, BetterHelp is a great option. It's entirely online and eminently affordable, so think of it as a way of testing the waters. You'll get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and if you don't click for whatever reason, you can get rematched at any time. There's no pressure, no hassle, and no commitment. Problem solved. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Vigilante today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Vigilante. So you may already be aware of Cass' newest true crime podcast, Lost in Panama, which explores the disappearance of two tourists in 2014. But if you haven't caught up yet on the latest episodes, I just want to make sure you're aware of some newly uncovered evidence and testimony that's shining new light on this case. So the first four episodes of Lost in Panama set up the foundation of what's known about the missing women, including a deep dive into a suspicious tour guide and the mysterious photos the women left behind. But episode five launches the investigation forward as the woman presents to the team a full, detailed story of exactly how the women were apparently abducted and killed. After this key piece of testimony, the pieces start to fit together, or at least start to make a little bit more sense. With this major breakthrough in hand, the team must then attempt to convince the Panamanian government that there's more going on here than the official story suggests. Listen to the series to find out if the case will finally be reopened to provide the families of the missing women closure after all these years. Every episode of Lost in Panama is available now wherever you get your podcasts. 
they spent several years going around to these rabbis and to these leaders saying, we're experts, we have all the answers. And for these rabbis and these community leaders and even therapists, that's all they needed to hear. They did not ask any questions. They didn't need to know what they were doing. They didn't need to know if they were licensed. This is exactly what Arthur exploited when he started Jonah. And the way he made money from the scam was very simple. He'd get a referral from a rabbi, outsource the so-called life coaching to other already established ex-gay groups that focus on other religious communities like Mormons, and take a portion of the proceeds for himself. All told, Jonah had only a small handful of actual employees. Basically, everything was subcontracted. But despite Jonah's relatively small size, it quickly gained an outsized reputation in Brooklyn's Hasidic Jewish communities. And Arthur, who, remember, he was a disgraced lawyer, suddenly began to refer to himself as a rabbi, too. Mordecai, for his part, remembers meeting with Arthur back in the early days of his organization. He was struggling with same-sex attraction himself, and Arthur was just who you talked to when that was something you were dealing with. There were no other options, but even then, Mordecai said that he found the Jonah sales pitch a little lacking. Some of the reading material that he offered me was this kind of Christian reading material, and uh, where where actually like mentioned Jesus, and I and I like like just offhand them like this is really like I'm an Orthodox boy like this is do you normally just send you know material with you know Jesus in them to Orthodox boys? And he said no no no. He's like it's simple. He's like every time it says Jesus, just substitute the with the word Hashem, and nobody in Orthodoxy, nobody would ever say that. So I was like, immediately the red flags went off, but like, this guy's a faker. Mordecai described Arthur to me as cunning, but more of a salesman than anything else. Although he was trying to sell his idea to some of the most conservative of all the Jewish people, he himself was basically secular in comparison. He definitely didn't have the theological bona fides to connect with Mordecai. I could tell that he was uh, he was not a dumb person because you know there's actually a a, a certain um, there's a certain intelligence to avoid answering a question directly. <laughs> so you know uh, it's almost like a politician, right? Like you know you're sleazy, but you're 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 definitely not dumb. So Mordecai never signed up to go on a retreat with Jonah. He actually went on to leave the ultra-Orthodox community entirely and found his own support organization called JQY, or Jewish Queer Youth. That's where he met Haim back when he was a confused teenager. Haim was straddling two worlds at the time. He was out, but he was also still involved with Jonah. One day, he told Mordecai about his weekend retreat in Pennsylvania. He nonchalantly ran down the list of things that happened there. The, the stuff that went on there is pretty well documented. A lot of really crazy things, reenactment of life trauma, nudity, holding between, like, like uh, you know, older men, holding young men, like, cradling them like they were babies. The, for me, the straw that broke the camel's back and which eventually unleashed the flood, uh, floodgates was my life coach essentially manipulating me into taking my clothes off and touching myself as a form of therapy, quote-unquote. Mordecai couldn't believe it. He'd always known Arthur Goldberg was a scam artist, but this was something much more sinister. I was furious. I, I just, I was, you know, I was furious. I was confused why Chaim wasn't furious. Like, uh, I, I, 
you know, I was just, I didn't know, like it just sounded so preposterous and and harmful and so obviously wrong um, that I was just like, Chaim, you like this is abuse, <laughs> like this is like this was what what happened. And then, and then I heard that this is actually not something. Meaning, Chaim said this is not this is not even something that Jonah is embarrassed about. Right? They, they do this with a lot of their clients, and they do, do similar things not only on their one-on-one clients, but they also do this at some of their experiential weekends where they get naked together and um, are asked to do things. Uh, so, you know, I was just like, well, we have to tell the world. Right? We have to tell the world. It wasn't long before Mordecai convinced Haim to take action. So the two came up with a plan. They knew right off the bat that they need to get the rabbis to stop referring people to Jonah. But that didn't work. Some Orthodox rabbis didn't believe us. Um, and they said, oh, well, this is just, you know, you're just making up stories. Uh, and we literally brought, like, multiple people, and they still didn't, they didn't want to believe us. Scott McCoy was still a high-powered lawyer at a private firm in New York City when he was contacted by the Southern Poverty Law Center about possibly working with him on a case. The SPLC had the idea to take on the practice of conversion therapy, and they were actively seeking possible plaintiffs for what could be a landmark civil rights case. Chaim was actively protesting against gay conversion therapy at the time and seemed like a good fit. I just started writing and blogging, and I relentlessly, you know, I had some, some good advice, which was, you need to talk about this nonstop. You need to say, my name is Chaim Levitt, and I was abused by Jonah. But Scott knew he was asking Chaim to go beyond just protesting. It's difficult. Uh, I, I think that people think, or may have a misconception that like, you know, oh, being a plaintiff in a lawsuit is fairly easy. All you have to do is, you know, uh, you know, be willing to, to, to have someone, you know, file a complaint for you and all that kind of stuff. But, but people don't understand exactly the rigors of going through a major lawsuit like this. Chaim was on board, but not everyone agreed with his decision. Here's his friend Mordecai again. I was very concerned. Um, I was not one of these people who said, yeah, yeah, sue him. Uh, you know, I, I was very, very concerned uh, that... Uh, both the well-being of Chaim and the well-being of the other the other plaintiffs, uh, you then become completely susceptible and helpless to the American legal system, which we know does not always work, and we know is not perfect. So the risks were very very high, and I uh, before the the trial happened, um, Chaim will tell you I was not the guy that said, Chaim, let's sue, let's do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. I was very um, skeptical and conservative and saying, you know, I don't know if you should do it. Chaim was going to need to reveal a lot of himself if he wanted to potentially take down the organization that abused him. His testimony would bring to light what exactly happens in conversion therapy. But in putting that out there, he'd also be putting himself at great mental and emotional risk. Even if Chaim won his lawyers might be the only people who got the glory. He'd have to trust Scott, even though they just met. I don't, you know, I think that there could be incredible good uh, that can happen if you win, and there can also be incredible bad that can happen even if you win, meaning your own mental health trauma. And if you lose, there could be incredible, incredible, you know, uh, trauma, both from a communal perspective and from a youth perspective. And perhaps, you know, your lawyers will go and say, okay, you know, they'll live on another day, but you'll, you'll be left and the community will be left in shambles. 
Chaim Levin was just a teenager when he was referred to a notorious gay conversion therapy program by his rabbi. He then went on a weekend retreat meant to help him, quote-unquote, reclaim his manhood. They offer these weekends called Journey into Manhood. I know what it sounds like, and it is a lot what it sounds like, but it's also not because it's, you know, fucked up. The weekend was loosely themed after the Jack and the Beanstalk story, and it centered around a bizarre form of role play. Participants would wear a bag of beans around their necks, meant to represent their masculinity, and then have to earn the right to keep them through various exercises. Heim just sent me the tapes of his deposition, which have never been heard by anyone not involved with the case before. So um, on the first night, there was uh, an activity that involved holding or healthy touch, which I did not uh, participate in. I participated in just that. I allowed Mr. Downing to put his arm around my shoulder, unlike the other participants or most of the other participants who were being held. I did some... I did something with, uh, I was strapped down and there was someone who was representing my mother who was saying, I love you, I love you, and my, I was to break free of that. Um, there was also uh, an instance where we were blindfolded and we were, uh, there, were there were sound effects and staff members uh, mimicking the sounds of a locker room and using epithets like uh, faggot, uh, homo, queer, uh, you're so fucking gay, um, and they were bouncing basketballs. Uh, I found that to be particularly uh, disturbing. Okay. I would be working with life coaches who are not licensed or qualified in any way, but that was a relatively common practice in the ultra-Orthodox community he was a part of. I would actually meet Haim later, in 2016, when I was investigating the case of two sisters who died by suicide after being referred to an unlicensed life coach in the Hasidic community. But back in 2007, well before we met, Haim was still straddling two worlds. He was out as a gay man, but he was also seeing a life coach referred to him by Jonah, named Alan Downing. One day, Haim admitted to his friend Mordecai what happened. And eventually he was connected with a corporate lawyer named Scott, who decided to help try his case for free. We heard from him previously. Besides being a lawyer, Scott was the first openly gay senator in Utah, another place dominated by a conservative religious group. He felt like he could relate to Haim, but also knew the kinds of questions he might be asked as part of the deposition and trial process. So the two sat down to prepare Haim for examination. The lawyer knew that every aspect of his client's life was about to be ruthlessly scrutinized. That meant they'd read his emails and texts. They'd put him under a microscope in order to exploit any perceived deficit of character. They'd make him talk about the most intimate things imaginable in front of his own mother. She was also a plaintiff in the suit and would be sitting right there in the courtroom listening. Um, we would do practice you know, examinations where um, you know, we would role play and, and, uh, I would, you know, pepper him with, with hard questions and, um, you know, being deposed is, is something that, uh, you can practice, right. And you can, like, there are some rules and tricks that where you could just be like, okay, like, you know, let's, let's, uh, do this as well as we possibly can. But we did, we spent many hours talking about, Um, what was coming and where we thought they might focus, and we did that. But most importantly, Haim would be grilled on every aspect of his life during 
and after the weekend retreat. Scott correctly anticipated that Himes' emails and texts would provide ammunition to suggest that what happened at the retreat couldn't have been that bad. After all, Himes' mood in the weeks following the retreat was super upbeat. You know, like a day after after going to journey into manhood, you know, he's like raving about it and about how, you know, you know, all this kind of stuff. But so we knew that was out there, but we also, we knew what was under, we knew what was going on, which is, of course, you're going to go to this place that is very affirming. And you've met all these people for the first time that are going through the same thing you are. You no longer feel alone. You feel supported. And that makes you feel positive and good. It doesn't mean you're not still attracted to men, but you feel better. You can hear the defense make the exact arguments Scott predicted they would. We're in a recording and on the record. Here begins video number one, the deposition of Kaim Levin in the matter of Michael Ferguson et al. versus Jonah et al. And then you said uh, when the experience was over, overall it was a positive one you thought at the time. Well, what about the experience was positive to you at that time? You know, I, I, I'm not really sure. I was just very emotional. I was very... Um, I was... I felt connected to people. It was it was a relief to speak to other people who were like me, with people who who were gay, uh, which I'd never had the opportunity to do until then. Okay. The defense also tried to suggest that the abuse Heim endured at the hands of his life coach was really no different from what he'd previously put himself through willingly as a gay man. Here they are discussing an exercise in which Haim was forced to cast off clothing while talking about his body image issues. All right, Mr. Levin, we know that you had, because you, what you told us, uh, been in the presence of uh, other men. Uh, obviously, if you were having anonymous sexual encounters with men, presumably you would be naked with them. Uh, why was an, uh, a non-sexual thing where Mr. Downey was standing five feet away uh, when you were naked, uh, so upsetting to you when you had been in the presence of, of men that you didn't even know in a naked state. What what was uh, so upsetting to you about being uh, naked with Mr. Downey going through this exercise? Okay, well, for starters, when I had intimate encounters with other men, it was consensual, which means I decided to take my clothes off willingly. I wasn't forced or pushed or encouraged or told that that's what I had to do for the work. Um, also, like I've said many times, I objected to this session to Mr. Downey multiple times, and he didn't respect that. So combined with that and his instruction to hold my penis in front of him, I was very upset later on because I felt violated. The, when I had encounters with other men, I didn't strip in front of them and stand in front of a mirror as they looked on with their clothes on. And eventually... They tried to appeal to Haim by claiming that Arthur, the convicted con man who started Jonah, was really just trying to help gay people. The prosecution wanted to know, was Haim sure he was doing the right thing by trying to take Arthur down? You understand you're trying to put uh, Jonah out of business, right? Yes. Okay, and that my clients have put in thousands of hours to this nonprofit organization because they believe they're helping people. Do you understand that? I understand that they believe that they're helping people. Okay, but nonetheless, do you think it's appropriate to say it's 
entertaining to you that you're trying to put them out of business? Objection, argumentative. If you want to take one sentence I said out of a whole conversation and take it out of context, then yes, I could understand why it's inappropriate. But this, was this questioning went on for something like 14 hours. But little did the defense know at the time Scott had come up with an unusual and risky legal gambit that could just be the key to bringing down Jonah for good. Jonah had undoubtedly inflicted emotional distress on Haim. But Scott's idea was to posit that they'd also sold him snake oil. They, they came up and offered, you know, a good dozen men who, who supposedly were, were, would testify that the Jonah program actually... Uh, help them overcome their same-sex attraction. Um, and we challenged them. We deposed them. We, you know, put them on the stand and, and basically got them all to admit, well, you're actually still attracted to men. So it didn't work. <laughs> um, just because you now call yourself... And for the next three years, the two prepared to take that argument to trial. When the moment finally came, a jury voted unanimously in their favor in just four weeks. Jonah was forced to shut down and liquidate all of its assets. Before Haim joined the case, his friend Mordecai warned him that even in the best-case scenario, it was possible that the legal team would get the glory, while he'd be left to pick up the pieces of a completely shattered life. And as it turned out, Scott actually didn't get very much in the way of glory at all. One day after the decision came down, the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage. In comparison, his victory barely registered with the national media. And the Jonah case, because it was about consumer fraud, even though it shut down an organization, didn't get that kind of press. And, and then what happened the day after Jonah um, lost was the marriage equality case uh, was decided um, by the Supreme Court the day after. And so any press that Jonah was going to get was completely kiboshed and completely forgotten. And now that I will not downplay. The marriage equality uh, thing actually did make a huge difference. And, and to thousands and thousands of queer people who were able to get married and weren't able to get married. But at the end of the day, I don't think the Jonah case is seen as a visceral success from activists because they see success in terms of the you know, the, the, the press, the, the hoopla, the honor, the, and that, that's, you know, and you don't get that. And as far as Haim was concerned, challenging the most prominent members of a close-knit community meant he was basically no longer welcome there. And I'm telling you that every time I'm in Crown Heights, wherever I go, whatever I do, people are always doing like a double take or just get straight up giving me like a dirty look. There was also the fact that Arthur created a new organization just two weeks after the ruling that operated very similarly to Jonah. Chaim took him back to court in 2017, and after another two more years of litigation, a judge ordered that new organization to shut down as well. But Arthur didn't stop there. He appealed the judge's finding and was rejected. He then appealed to the state Supreme Court, which resulted in another rejection. But now it seems like it's truly over. The last day for Arthur to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court came and went this past May, the day before Haim's 33rd birthday. Looking for a fresh start, Haim recently moved to Philadelphia with his partner. 
he's finally getting a chance to figure out what he wants to do with his life as he heads into his mid-30s. For now, he's thinking about becoming a social worker. He admits he's a little bit behind schedule, in part because he spent the entirety of his 20s dealing with Arthur Goldberg. Whenever you talk about people who have done incredible things, those people are usually, they're also consequences of doing incredible things. Usually to do something so out of the ordinary, to change the world, to fight and win, those people often live with the scars of of even their victories. I managed to get Arthur on the phone and asked him to share his side of the story. What he was hoping to accomplish with Jonah and how Haim's lawsuit affected his life. After all, he was also part of a legal saga that dragged on for a decade and a half. He called Haim an asshole and hung up on me. He also said he didn't want to talk about anything having to do with Jonah. But that may be because Arthur is gearing up to start another similar organization outside of the U.S. At least the rumors are swirling. So there have been allegations, and I think even corroborated in court, that that, that he has been raising money, uh, been trying to profit over about uh, creating Jonah-like organizations or Jonah-like initiatives or still doing work out of America, trying to uh, be part of this work in places like Israel, in places like South Africa, in places like basically, you know, just kind of you know, continuing to do this stuff under the eyes of the law. So I don't think he has done any real repentance or introspection or he's never really taken any on any responsibility of the harm that he's done. I think every sense of the word he's been fighting uh, to pay uh, the things that he owes, uh, now declaring that he doesn't have any money and that Jonah doesn't have any, so he doesn't even try. I mean, the guy is a sleazebag. He's a con man. And he'll, he'll you know, he'll always be con man as far as I'm concerned. Vigilante is written by me, Ali Conti. It's produced by Colin Thompson, Trey Schultz, and me. Editing by Trey Schultz. Music editing and supervision by Colin Thompson. Mixing and mastering by Matt Sewell. Voiceover and narration was recorded at the Relic Room in New York and was engineered by Trey Schultz and Brett Tubin. Cover art by Leah Kantrowitz with photo credit to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Her end credit song is called To Walk Alone, and is by Rebecca Rose Harris and Franklin Mockett. This concludes our single episode story on Haim Levin, the plaintiff. Vigilante is a cast original production. i
Thanks for listening to our first single story. Stay tuned because there will be another one coming out soon, and later this year we'll have another full season coming out where we tell the story of a completely different kind of true crime. You won't want to miss it, so please remember to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. As always, if you have any ideas for future stories, please send us an email at vigilante at castmedia.com. Remember, that's cast with a K. It's also in the episode description. Thanks again so much for listening.